we wave high the flag of freedom as a patriotic reminder to never take our independence for granted. Fireworks explode into the night sky, lighting up the darkness, reminding us of our nation's calling in the world. One nation under God. We look into the sky and remember that for all the freedom we have to celebrate, we must never forget our dependence on God. It was by His hand we were afforded our independence. So we might stand for liberty, remembering He set us free from the bondage of sin. So we might stand for justice, for the Lord loves justice, and He will not forsake His saints. So we might stand for freedom, because we know that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We thank you, God, for the beautiful gift of our country. May we always depend on you to sustain us. It's free. So good to see all of you this morning as we uh, as we able, we're able to come together and we're able to celebrate together, especially on this 4th of July. It's a wonderful thing. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here at Lakes. And Again, it's just, be able, it's just a delight to be able to worship with you this morning. And for all of you who are joining us at home online, it's good, it's good for you to be able to join us as well. So we, uh, this is an exciting opportunity. Um, we just have some fun things that we get to announce this morning. Um, I want to begin by actually introducing Butch Morley and Luke Genheimer. They're going to come up and they're going to they're gonna share a little bit about something that we're doing this week. Good morning, Lakes Free Church. It is really good to be here. It's been a couple of years, and uh, y'all still look good. So, awesome. Um, I just on my the behalf of myself, my family, and J Three Sixteen Ministries, want to say thank you for your support. Thank you for your prayers, and uh, we're really excited. We have soccer camp this week right here on the grass, and uh, I believe. We might get up to 100 kids out there. Um, so we are still looking for some volunteer coaches. If there's anybody in this church that uh, has some time this week, wants to come out from 9 a.m. to about 1230 and, uh, and coach or learn how to coach and how to use sports as an opportunity to share the gospel, uh, you can meet me in the foyer afterwards. Well, good morning. And first of all, I don't want to forget this. My wife, Becky, sends her love to all those who know us. We spent seven years here uh, in Lindstrom, Minnesota. And uh, I just love telling my, I'm from South Africa originally. So we moved to Minnesota in January. I don't know who told us to do that, but we did. And we survived seven years. We're living in Florida, but my wife, Becky, sends her love to all those uh, who we know. And we thank you so much for your constant support and prayers. We are thrilled to be back and looking forward to a wonderful week uh, of camp uh, and sharing the love of the Lord Jesus Christ through John 3.16 and through the colors of the wordless book. So if your kid has not signed up yet, please sign up. And we're looking, to a great, looking forward to a great week of fun uh, and sharing the love of the Lord Jesus. So thank you so much, Lakes Free, for your support and having us back. Thank you. Butch, Luke, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Butch, you, you really got that Minnesota accent down. Well done, sir. 
Um, J316 is such a neat opportunity, not just for us and for our kids and grandkids and, and all of that, but even for our community. So please do remember today is the last day for registration. So, so, so it's time to rally the troops and get everyone signed up. Walk up and down your block inviting kids today to, uh, to take part in this. This is a neat opportunity for us and a neat, and a neat outreach for us. Um, something else just to put on your calendar, we've got our baptism info meeting coming up. So our baptism service is coming up soon. This is a, the info meeting is an opportunity for us to talk about what baptism is and why we pursue baptism. So if you're interested in pursuing baptism this year and following the Lord's commands on that, then, uh, then, then please make plans to attend that. That'll be July 18th during the second service, during the 1030 service in room 225. So uh, please go online and register for that. Um, and, then, uh, and then just a final note, um, again, 4th of July. And so this is an opportunity for us to praise God that we are living in a country that we, we've been able to benefit from a country that enjoys so much freedom and that we're able to gather together on a Sunday morning and to worship freely and to hear God's word and to pray together and to fellowship together. And what a wonderful opportunity this is. Let's begin the service in prayer. Father, again, I just thank you so much. I thank you for all the privileges that have been afforded to us by, by living in a country that celebrates freedom, that celebrates the opportunity for us to, to be able to gather together in your name like this today. Father, I pray that you would continue that in our country, that you would continue to work out this freedom. Lord, that your people would continue just to have unrestrained, unfettered access um, to gather together and op on Sunday mornings like this and be able to enjoy you together. Father, you are good. Lord, please just continue to be at work in our country. Father, I thank you for this time that we're able to, to be together and to celebrate you and your son and all that you have accomplished. Father, I pray that you would just guide us during this time, that you would open our eyes and our hearts, that we would have a better, deeper understanding of your beauty and your majesty. Lord, please be with us as we lift our voices in song to you. Lord, take our minds off the thoughts and the distractions of our weekly and our daily life, Lord, and just set our minds and our focus firmly upon you. Father, you are glorious. We pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, we do want to welcome you all this morning. We want to invite you to stand with us this morning as we prepare our hearts for communion.
This morning, we would like to invite all of you who have trusted in Christ, all of you who are Christians, to uh, participate with us at the Lord's table as we enjoy communion together. Even if you're visiting us from a different congregation this morning, you are still certainly welcome to, uh, to, to partake in the meal with us in, uh, in communion, the Last Supper with us. Um, this is an opportunity for us as God's people to celebrate who Christ is and what he's done. If you're visiting us this morning, though, and you haven't trusted in Christ, if you haven't taken that step to put your faith in Jesus and what he has accomplished for you, then we would ask you to, to, to abstain from the, um, from the elements this morning as we pass them. Um, this isn't any kind of sort of judgment upon you. Um, we're super excited that you're here. We're super excited that you're able to be with us this morning. And please don't worry about any judgment from your neighbors as you, uh, as you don't partake. But this is special. This is specifically for God's children to take part together. So we ask you to abstain for now. Um, hopefully you should have already received the elements as you entered into the service in your little, uh, in your little cup and packet. I have to carry mine in my jacket because I'm not, I, I would forget about it otherwise. And I have to say that's a little bit scary to carry grape juice in your jacket, but, but you got to do what you got to do, right? Um, just as, uh, as we prepare our hearts to take communion this morning, I want to meditate on John 14 verses 5 to 7. John 14, verses 5 to 7. We looked at this um, recently in our sermon. I'll, uh, I'll read the passage for you, beginning in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would, know, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. I'm gonna go a little bit further because I, I, I like the passage, it's just fun. Philip said to him, so Philip responded, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus, uh, Jesus kind of, I imagine, shook his head and said, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Why did he respond that way? He responded that way because again, he was the revelation of the Father. When people looked at Christ, when they looked at what he had done, when they looked at who he was, when they looked at his heart, you were able to see the Father. You were able to see the Father. He declares that I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. When he says that he's the way, he's indicating that he is the only path of true revelation. He is the only path for knowing the Father, and he's the only path for actually being able to enjoy a relationship with the Father. It is all through Christ. When he goes on to say that he is the, uh, that he is the, um, the truth, he indicates that because he is the perfect revelation of the Father. As we look at Christ, we see the truth about who the Father is. He is the perfect and righteous standard. He is the perfect, the perfect image of the invisible God, according to Paul in Colossians chapter 1. He is the truth about who the Father is. And when he says he's the life, it's because he is the one who dispenses eternal life. We go to him for eternal life. The, the, these are the benefits of Christ. These are the things that he presents to us. As we partake in communion today, we celebrate these realities. We celebrate the things that Christ has already supplied to us. 
The other side of the coin, though, is that Jesus is the only access to fellowship with God. When he says that I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, he's indicating that there is no other route. There is nothing else. It's not our good works. It's not our kindness. It's not all the duties that we do. It's not all the nice things. It's not, it's not being here on 4th of July morning that opens up the access that we need to the Father. Christ is the only route. And we'll never get there because we're good enough or because we're kind enough or because people like us so much. That's not sufficient. Christ is the only way. Communion then celebrates both of these realities. It celebrates the fellowship that we're able to enjoy with the Father through the Son, and it celebrates the singularity that he is the only route. He is the only access. So then we partake of communion today not in an effort to try to earn our salvation. Communion can't do that. Communion is not going to save us. That's not why we do communion today. Rather, we partake of communion today as the result, as the celebration of the salvation that we already enjoy, that Christ has already supplied to us. We experience salvation only through faith in Christ and his work for our sins, in his death and resurrection, and not through any works of our own. Just as, uh, so, so I'm going to pray over these elements um, once I've prayed, please hold on to your elements. So please hold on to your cup. We're going to take some time. We're going to meditate on these realities that we just spoke about in John 14. So I'll pray. We'll take some time to meditate. We're going to play some. We're going to play a song for you, um, and then at the end of the time, I'll get up here and I will lead us as we partake in communion together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your Son. Lord, I thank you that he came and that he was willing to shed his blood. He was willing to be broken. He was willing to do all of these things to accomplish the mission that you had given him for your glory and for the redemption of your people. Father, we continue just to bask in the realization of all that he has accomplished. Father, I pray that our hearts would be overwhelmed. Lord, there is no good, accurate way to respond to that truth, to respond to what he has accomplished, Father, outside of just worship and awe. God, you are good. Lord, I pray that as we, as we prepare our hearts to partake of these elements together, Lord, I pray that you would just be at work. Lord, that your spirit would be shaping us. Lord, that your spirit would be preparing our hearts, that your spirit would be guiding our minds and our thoughts as we think as we meditate upon you, you are glorious. We pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.
prepare the taking of the bread. Reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 24. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he's betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Prepare your cup. Reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So I'm sure many of you can identify with this sentiment. When, uh, when Catherine and I, my, when my wife and I, when we had our first children, we were really excited. One of the things we were excited about was just seeing them grow and seeing them learn and seeing them understand things and all of that. And so especially, especially as they first began to speak, it was really exciting. It was like, oh my goodness, they have a voice. Like they can, they're capable of saying things outside of like just basic guttural weird noises. Um, they're, they're beginning to speak. They're beginning to do things. And it was fun because then you also get to see a little, bit of their, a little bit of their personality, which is just, it's an exciting step as a parent. And so, so you know, you're recording like, oh, this is the first word on this date, and they were doing this and this and such. And then, and then you get to like your fourth child, and you're like, I don't, I don't even know what my kid's name is anymore. You kind of lose interest. Uh, it, it, is, it is funny, you, you know, as, at, least, at least in our experience, and maybe this isn't yours, um, as we continued down the line of children, as we got more children, we, we almost got a little bit less excited about them speaking and growing in their ability to speak. Because it was like, I mean, they would begin and they would say these fun things and they wouldn't be able to pronounce anything correctly. And there's just a certain cuteness about it. And then you look at your older kids and you're like, oh, will you say everything correctly now? Would you stop it? Would you like back? So, 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 so then at least in our house, we intentionally began sabotaging our kids' vocabulary and like trying to keep them back and trying to hold them down so that they didn't actually develop. Unfortunately, they, they still, for some reason, continue to develop and still continue to grow vocabularies and such. Um, um, our, our, our youngest, um, he wasn't able to say water bottle for the longest time, so he would just, he would just always ask for his bottle bottle which was amazing and so much fun. And then he lost it, and now he says water. And it's so discouraging. <laughs> so, so discouraging. I don't know why they continue to develop. Um, it, it's a fun thing watching your children learn how to speak and learning how to be able to communicate with you. It's an important thing, right? I, I, I imagine it's much the same from the divine perspective as our Father looks upon us. As we pray, we're speaking to the Father. When God looks at us, he sees us. He sees us as we first become Christians and we first begin to learn how to communicate with him, how to speak with him. And then, and then as we continue to grow our, our prayers and such, they refine, they change, they develop, they mature along with us. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing that our Father 
the creator of all the universe, the creator of all that is, and not, not just the creator, but the sustainer, the one who continues to preserve all things. He cares about us and our speaking to him. That's an amazing thing. And maybe even slightly more amazing is the fact that I think for so many of us, we take that reality so lightly. We take that reality so lightly that he who is holy and infinite and almighty and beyond all comparison, beyond all comprehensions, beyond all thought, he, he wants to hear from me and yet my prayer life reflects that I don't really embrace that the way that I should. I'm not nearly as excited about that as I should be. If I was really excited, if I, was really, if I, really, if I really believed the truths that I speak about Christ, how much would that change my prayer life? Um, this was shared with me a couple of weeks ago. This came out of Twitter. Mark Hamill, uh, many of you are familiar with his name, actor. He's the one who played Luke Skywalker in the Star, in the Star Wars series. Mark Hamill posted um, a, an old picture from the 70s of him and Billy D. Williams, who played Lando in Star Wars, um, the, the two of them meeting the queen, meeting the queen of England. And, and in this picture, you see, you see Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker, just staring at her feet when he meets her. And, and then he shares in the post, the reason why he's staring at her feet is because Billy D. Williams had just told him that he is not allowed to look her in the face and by, by English customs, by English law, if he actually looked her in the face, then that's punishable by death, by execution, or at least by imprisonment, which, of course, is totally a lie, totally wrong. And so, and so in this picture, Billy D. Williams is just kind of giggling in the background while, while Mark Hamill is just staring at her feet. And, and why, why is he willing to just stare at her feet instead of actually looking her in the face? Well, for, for one, ignorance about British law. But then, but then also, secondarily, because he recognizes that she is royalty. There probably is a distinction. He's, he's more careful about the way that he interacts with her than he is about the way he would interact with an average, normal person. And yet again, when I think about my relationship and my prayer life and what I, what I act like with God, I don't find the same care and consideration. I think the passage that we look at this morning helps, with, helps provide us with some corrective on that. As we look at our passage this morning, we'll see Jesus provides us with a powerful paradigm for prayer. Jesus provides us with a par powerful paradigm for prayer. Now, most of us are pretty familiar with the Lord's passage. This is going to come out of um, John chapter 17, verses 1 to 19. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up. Most of us are pretty familiar with the Lord's Prayer and could even largely quote it from memory. But I, I, I imagine, imagine most of us probably couldn't do that with this prayer, with John 17, 1 through 19. Um, which is interesting, you know, the, Jesus has many prayers throughout Scripture, but this, this is one of, this is the longest prayer that we have recorded from Jesus, which makes it, which makes it specifically, particularly helpful as we're thinking through the relationship of the Father and the Son. How does Jesus interact with God the Father? And I think it'll be particularly instructive for us as we kind of wrestle through what does it mean to pray to God the Creator? Let's, uh, let's begin then by reading our passage one more time. That's John 17, verses 1 through 19. And I'll read. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, 
The hour has come. Glorify, the, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you. And they believe that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be, that they may be one, even as you are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the, in the truth. Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. Father, please guide us during this time. Lord, as we, as we seek to understand you, to know you, to know what it means to pray to you and to communicate with you and to try to, just to strive to do so better, Father, I pray that you would just guide us. We desperately need you and your guidance. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, helping us to open, open our eyes, that we might understand, that we might see the beautiful things in your word. Lord, please just guide us during this time. Please ignite our hearts with a deeper fervor and desire to know and to worship you. Father, we pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So our passage today then falls at the end of Jesus' famous farewell discourse, which makes up chapters 13 through 17 of the Gospel of John. So that's, that's where we've been for the past little while now. It's a, it's a distinctive discourse that Jesus gives at the end of his life. He's, he has come into Jerusalem. He has experienced his Holy Week, his final week of life. He has been preparing for the cross and for the resurrection. Sorry, I should have given a spoiler warning on that. For Jesus' death and his resurrection, it's coming soon. Um, he, he's been preparing for all of this. And at the, at the very end of this, he gives this lengthy discourse. And this discourse is kind of a primer. It's kind of a 101 course on the spiritual life. What does it mean to have relationship with God? I would encourage all of you, kind of as we finish up the farewell discourse over the next couple of weeks, to go back and to read through these chapters because they are so rich and they are so deep. There's so much in them. There's so many repeating themes that Jesus wants us to pick up on. I mean, mind you, the, the significance of this discourse, Jesus is about to be gone from his disciples. 
He's about to be departed from them. And this is his opportunity to give them the most important things that they're going to need as they continue on in his wake. Okay, so that, that's the farewell discourse. That's what we've been looking at. So in our passage this morning then, Jesus closes up the farewell discourse by giving us a prayer. He has taught the disciples all these things, and now he is going to pray over the disciples to the Father. Um, in our passage specifically today, we're going to look at, well, his prayer is actually broken up into three elements. The, the first element is where he actually prays for himself in verses 1 to 5. In verses 6 to 19, he prays for his disciples, those who are immediately with him. And then the last section, verses 20 to the end, that's where he actually prays for us, for the church, for those who are not yet his disciples, for those who are not yet his followers, but for those who eventually would become such. We'll explore that part of the prayer next week in our final sermon on the farewell discourse. This morning we'll focus on those first two, though. As we look at our passage this morning, I do want to raise one word of caution as we, as we approach this. Our, fa- our focus is going to be on Jesus' provision of a powerful paradigm for prayer. And I, I chose those words carefully. I chose those words carefully. When I say paradigm, I mean a general model that highlights some fundamental principles. All right, a general model that highlights some fundamental principles. I don't mean, what I don't mean is that this prayer is a mere formula that we should attempt to replicate or to strictly follow. Sometimes, sometimes we find that with the Lord's Prayer, right? Again, most of you are probably pretty familiar with the Lord's Prayer. And we'll find that sometimes people use it only as a, as a mere tool, as a mere formula that they should pray through. All right, that's not what I mean. That's not how I think Lord's Prayer is meant to be used, and that's not what I mean by this prayer today. Um, Rather, this is meant to be a helpful guide. This isn't the outline for all of our prayers. There's variation. As we look at Jesus' different prayers that we see in the Gospels, we see a variety of things that he prays for. There's not just one set prayer that he prays over and over and over again. There's a rich variety. And and even outside of Jesus' own prayers, we see throughout the New Testament many prayers. And there's a rich variety in those prayers as well. And and then we can even go to the Old Testament, and we can go to the book of Psalms, which the book of Psalms is just a book of prayers. And again, there's a rich variety in there over things that are prayed for. So one of the things that we should learn, that we should learn as we look at the prayers that are scattered throughout Scripture is that there should be a variety. And our, our own personal prayers should actually reflect that variety that we see in Scripture. But there is something that's unique about seeing Jesus himself pray. And certainly each of Jesus' prayers are a mind that's just begging to be explored so we can discover jewels that are going to enrich our own spiritual life and our own prayer life. So it's with that kind of word of caution that I excitedly turn to the passage. Turning to the passage this morning, Jesus begins his prayer to the Father. Jesus' prayers are always addressed to his Father. That wasn't, that, that, that that was unique in the ancient world for a Jew to refer to the Father as my Father to refer to God as my father. He was indicating even at the outset that he enjoyed a special privilege and a special relationship with the father that other Jews, that other worshipers of God didn't enjoy. So here we have an example of this communication between the second person of the Trinity and the first person of the Trinity. They're enjoying conversation with one another. Now this is amazing. Does Jesus need to pray out loud? 
No, of course Jesus doesn't need to pray out loud. He chooses to pray out loud. I mean, Jesus is probably praying all the time. So why does he choose to pray out loud here? Well, I, I think the answer is because his disciples are with him. This isn't just an opportunity for him to pray for, to the Father, but this is also an opportunity for him to teach the disciples about what it means to pray and for them also to witness his priorities in prayer. So Jesus begins by announcing, by, by announcing again, just as he did back in chapter 12, that his hour had finally come. You see that at the very beginning of our passage. My hour has come. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has been telling, has been saying consistently, my hour has not come, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. And then all of a sudden we hit chapter 12 in the, in the, in the Gospel, and we see a change of pace. All of a sudden, Jesus, Jesus changes from my hour has not yet come to my hour has finally come. So that was back in chapter 12. So that was, that was just the very beginning of Holy Week for Jesus. That was right after the triumphal entry. And now at the end of the week, just prior to his death, we see him praying through what it means for his hour to be here. Well, what does it mean for his hour to be here? The hour that Jesus keeps referring to is the culmination of his earthly ministry. It's the culmination of everything that he's been about, from his teachings, his signs, his miracles, that all ultimately culminates in his death and in his resurrection. That's the hour that he's referring to. It's the completion of his earthly ministry. It is all coalesced into this single moment, this hour. And it is in this moment that Jesus himself will be glorified. This is what he's been here for. This is what he's been working towards, this final hour. So Jesus is praying about his glorification, but Jesus doesn't leave it at this. It's not, it's not all about him. He quickly goes on to state the purpose of his glorification. The whole purpose of his ministry ultimately is the Father's glory. It's the Father's glory. Jesus has been diligent to state this over and over again throughout the gospel. Why does he do this? Because it's that important and because it's that central to everything that he's been about. This is all ultimately about the Father's glory and seeing the Father glorified in all things. That's the most important thing to him. He is possessed with a mission that is primarily focused on displaying the glory of the Father. And he goes on in verse 2 to explain how the Father will be glorified. He explains how exactly that's going to happen. The Father has given Jesus authority over all people to grant eternal life. To grant eternal life. What does, he, what does he mean by eternal life? I mentioned eternal life as we were partaking in communion together. And I think a lot of people have, have, a, have a maybe slightly off understanding of what eternal life actually means. Jesus clarifies eternal life in verse 3. And, and I think this is interesting. I think a lot of people, when they hear the expression eternal life, what they really think in their minds is that this is everlasting life. I think when they hear eternal life, I think they, mean, uh, I think they believe that means everlasting life. In other words, life that goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on, right? It just keeps going on and on. But that's not actually how Jesus defines eternal life. He has more nuance to it than that. It's not just life that goes on and on. It's interesting, actually. I had a conversation with someone, with someone somewhat recently. Um, this individual was actually struggling with this notion. They were falling into a belief called annihilationism. Annihilationism is a denial 
uh, of the eternality of hell. It's a denial of hell. And it's a belief, rather, that when non-Christians die, they actually just cease to exist. They just, poof, they're gone. They cease to exist. There's no hell for them. Okay? So, so this particular individual was struggling with annihilationism. And, and this, is, this is actually one of the reasons why he was struggling with annihilationism. He, he was falling into this belief because he had, I mean, probably a, there were a number of things that were wrong, but at least one of the things that was wrong was he had a wrong understanding of what eternal life meant. Here was his logic. His logic was that Jesus grants eternal life only to Christians. Eternal life means everlasting existence. Therefore, non-Christians don't get everlasting life, and thus they don't exist forever. Hence, annihilationism. They cease to exist. Now, again, there's several problems here, but verse 3 clarifies at least one of the issues in this. Eternal life doesn't mean everlasting life. Eternal life is relationship with the everlasting God. Eternal life means relationship with the everlasting God. It's not about what you are. Rather, it's about who you know. It's all about relationship with the everlasting, with the eternal, with the God that has no limits. That's what eternal life means. Everyone lasts forever. Everyone will, co- will continue to go on after this life. Everyone does in one form or another. That's not unique for the believers of God. What is unique about the believers of God is that we get to enjoy a relationship with the eternal God. That's eternal life. So Jesus is the avenue to eternal life, knowing and enjoying God. And this redemptive work that he's been about is so central to the glorification of the Father. It's it's at the hub of how Jesus is bringing glory to the Father by redeeming a people, by dispensing eternal life. In other words, Jesus here is praying that he would finish the task of redemption that he's begun for the Father's glory. And now Jesus looks forward to being, verse 5, back with the Father in his glory. After the resurrection, he will ascend to the right hand of the Father, still fully incarnate. He doesn't de-incarnate. He doesn't cease to be human. He'll ascend to the Father, and he will continue to be both fully God and fully man. Um, His earthly mission will be fully accomplished, having revealed the glory of the Father so that all God's people might erupt in the worship of his name. That's what Jesus is about. That's what he's excited about. That's what his prayers are focused on. That that consumes him. This is what moves and motivates him. He prays for his ministry, ultimately, so that the Father might get the glory. This razor-sharp focus on the Father's glory isn't only expressed here. It's not only expressed in this prayer. We see it in Jesus' other prayers as well, a focus either on God's glory or God's will being accomplished. He prays in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. He prays it in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my wills, but yours be done. He prays it back in John 12 that we've already explored where he says, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So if this conviction, if this reality is so central to Jesus' life, to Jesus' motivations, shouldn't this be our sentiment as well? Shouldn't this be at the center of everything for us? So I guess let me ask, is this, is this reflected in your own prayer life? 
Are you most concerned about God's things, or let's be honest, are you more concerned about your own things? Are these the sorts of prayers that you pray when you're alone? Are these the sorts of prayers that you pray when you're other, with your other people? This really isn't even just a prayer. This is really a worldview. This is really how we view all things. Some might say, sure, sure, the glory of God, yeah, that, that's important to me. I mean, I don't always pray about it because I don't always have to make it front and center. I don't feel like it needs to be mentioned every single time. It's just kind of, it's just kind of understood. It might be how some people feel about it. It goes without saying. But if you were to come up and ask me, if you were to come up and ask me, Stephen, what are some of the most important things in your life? And I was to go through the list of things that I really enjoy, and at no point in time do I mention my wife and my kids, and my wife is standing next to me, I'm going to be in trouble, right? I'm going to be in a lot of trouble when we go home later on. She's going to be like, why didn't, you, why didn't she mention me? Why didn't she mention our kids? What does that mean? Why don't you care about us? Um, that, that, that's the way the conversation will ensue. Because, because, and rightly so, because she rightly perceives, if this actually happened, which this has never happened. This is not a story from my life. <laughs> this has not happened. Um, because if it ever did for some reason happen, she would rightly perceive the things that we care most about, we talk about. The things that we care most about, we think about. The things we care most about, we spend time on. These are the things that capture our hearts and our imagination. If you don't believe me, just look at the way we handle uh, sports, right? I mean, how much time are we willing to dedicate to sports? And it's because it's a priority. It's because it's something that we care about. We enjoy watching sports. It's the same thing with the glory of the Father. If we truly care about it, if it's truly at the center of our hearts, then we're going to be excited to share about it. We're going to be excited to talk about it. We're going to be excited to include it in our prayers. The things that are most important about, we make a big deal about them. So, question. So, or, so if it's not, if the glory of God isn't central for you, then what do we do? What's our first step? Well, I'll be honest with you. I think oftentimes the glory of God is not the most central thing at my heart. I think, I think oftentimes I have to confess that my first step is when I go into my prayer time, I pray, Father, I confess to you, I'm not most excited about your glory. I'm way more excited about my things. I'm way more excited about me. I'm way more excited about, about et cetera, et cetera. Your glory is not the most central to my heart right now. And then I repent of that. And I ask God to change my heart. And I'll, I'll just be honest with you. A lot of my prayers begin that way because I'm fallen. There is a day in which God's glory will be the most central to me. And I'm excited for that day. I long for that day. But that day probably isn't today. And so I continue to confess, I continue to repent to him, and I continue to seek change in my own life so that God and his glory would continue to become the most central things in my life. Jesus then provides us with a counterexample of one who is possessed with a desire to fulfill his mission from the Father and for the Father. Then Jesus transitions to praying, not just for himself and his mission and the glory of the Father, but he transitions to praying about the disciples. 
And as he prays for the disciples, he prays for three things in particular. And it's helpful to take note of these because we can learn about what Jesus' priorities are for his disciples. Key ingredients that as Jesus departed from them, he knew that they would continue to need as they carried on in his wake. These, then, are important for us to take note of because they should be instructive for our own prayer life, for how we view ourselves, for how we view the world around us, and even, and even how we pray for others. These should help guide us. Again, that doesn't make this a mere formula. This isn't a, a formula that we're praying, but these are some of Jesus' own priorities. In verses 6 through 11, Jesus identifies who these disciples are. They are the ones that the Father has given to him, that he's been with throughout his ministry, that he's ministered to, that he's actually ministered with. Jesus' earthly ministry has been completed, and now he lifts them up in prayer to the Father to continue the work that he has begun in their lives, to continue what has already begun to be accomplished. And the Father will continue to work. As the Son goes to be with the Father, as we've already discussed in the farewell discourse multiple times, the Son is going to send the Spirit. He's going to send the Spirit who is going to come, and he will begin to apply all of these prayers, all of these truths, all these priorities, all these realities to the lives of his disciples. So Jesus begins these three things. Jesus' first thing, the first thing that he identifies that he asks the Father to, that he asks for the Father in prayer is that the Father would protect these disciples, that he would protect them. Verse 11 reads, <clears throat> Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. In your name is, is kind of just a roundabout way of saying keep them connected to you. Maintain that relationship with them. Don't allow them to stray. Their continued relationship with God is of the utmost importance. While, while, while Jesus himself was with them, ministering over them, he preserved them in their faith. And he did this because they were his. But because they're his, they are also ultimately the Father's. And because they belong to the Father, we can have confidence that the Father will continue to preserve them. Why? Because this prayer ultimately echoes the heart of the Father himself. Because he loves his people. He loves his children. And he longs to preserve them. This echoes his own heart. It accords to his will. And God delights to answer and to use prayers that echo his own will. He speaks to us through his word. We take in his words and his spirit uses them so that we can be shaped and so we can be transformed. So that, so that as we speak to God, so that as prayers come out, the words that come out are words that have been transformed and conformed. When we speak to, back to God, we speak with a new voice that ultimately resonates his own. It's almost like someone tuning an instrument, coming in and recognizing this instrument isn't quite right. It's a little bit out of whack. It's a little bit out of tune person comes in with a tuner, either they use their ear or they use some kind of instrument, they, they, they change that instrument, they transform it, and they, they bring it into accord with some other standard so that when that instrument goes on to continue to play afterwards, it's able to play rightly. It is a retuned instrument. That's similar to how our prayers work. As we take in God's word, as we hear from him, our prayers are transformed so that we can rightly respond to him. These are the sorts of things that we see also in scripture. 
We see in Scripture himself, we regularly see these sorts of prayers in Scriptures, prayers that conform to his desires. They conform to his promises. They conform to the things that he longs for. Those are the sorts of prayers that God loves to hear, prayers that reflect his own heart. And that's what Jesus is doing here when he prays for the disciples, when he prays for their protection, when he prays for their preservation. He's praying the very things that God delights to do. And there is no chance whatsoever of the, of the disciples being preserved apart from God doing this. Right? He has to pray about it because there's no chance for the disciples otherwise. They can't preserve themselves. They can't grow themselves. They can't continue to hold on on their own. The, rather, the preservation of the disciples depends on their organic relationship to Christ himself It'd be similar. It'd be similar to, to me. It'd be similar. You know, I'm in preservation. So if you've ever uh, if you've ever had something in your kitchen, the, some kind of perishable good, and you forgot to put it back in the fridge, what's it going to do? Well, it's going to turn bad. It doesn't have any ability on its own to preserve itself. Uh, my, my, first, uh, my first semester as a college student, not my first semester in college, but my first semester as a college student living in, in my own apartment outside dorms and everything, I, uh, I thought, oh, I'm going to be really responsible. I'm going to be the greatest college student ever. So I went out and bought a head of lettuce because um, I was going to be healthy. And, uh, and so, and, and I was like, well, what do you, so I bought a container to, to put this head of lettuce in, uh, lettuce in, and then I brought it home, and all my roommates stared at me like I was the weirdest thing ever, because I had a head of lettuce, and they're like, why, vegetables, what's that all about? Um, and so, and so I was like, no, really, I'm healthy. So, uh, so I put it in my fridge, in the back of my fridge, and then uh, a year and a half later, I think, when, when, when I finally moved out of that apartment, I was trying to collect all my stuff, and one of my roommates was like, your, your head of lettuce is still there pulled it out, and at that point, it actually liquefied, which was kind of neat. Um, I, I, I threw the whole thing away. Obviously, I did not keep that lettuce container. Um, th- things don't preserve themselves. They need to be preserved by something else, right? The disciples weren't going to be able to preserve themselves. They were totally dependent upon God to do this mighty work in them. So Jesus prays for them because he is confident that the Father will be able to accomplish this. Jesus goes on to, to the second point, to pray for the pleasures of his disciples, to pray, pray for their pleasure and their joy. Verse 13, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He prays that they might have joy. As we looked at joy last week, we saw, we saw that it is one of those things that comes only from the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit will bring joy in the Christian's life. And here we see that this isn't just any joy. This isn't just any joy. See, I, I love the words here. This is my joy. My joy. He's going to put my joy. My joy will be fulfilled in them. It's Christ's own joy. Prior to this, we saw back in John 15, there also Christ had promised not just our own joy, but that Christ's own joy would be in us. His own joy is surgically implanted into our hearts through the medical work of the Holy Spirit. So this joy is is unique. It is Christ's own joy himself. Now, what does he mean by joy? Joy isn't some naive kind of superficial Pollyanna sort of uh, happiness that blissfully says everything is great. Like you drop a log on your foot, you you hurt, and you're like, no, life is good. It's great. 
as you're just wincing to not cry. Um, that, that's not the sort of joy, uh, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. I think sometimes Christians feel a burden, burden by our culture to wear a fake smile on their face and to pretend that everything's okay. But this is a much deeper thing than that. The joy spoken here is a satisfaction and a pleasure in God regardless of your situation. It's a satisfaction and pleasure in God regardless of our circumstances. So when things are good, we feel joy. But also when things are bad, we can continue to feel that joy. In fact, even when things are really bad, we can continue to feel that joy. Because again, this isn't, this isn't a, ha- a happiness or a superficiality. This is delight and satisfaction in God regardless regardless of what may come. Jesus is on the verge of his departure, and he knows that his disciples will experience hardship and trials. In fact, many of his disciples will actually go on to martyrdom, right? These are individuals who are going to be tortured, who are going to be persecuted, who are going to be cast out, who are going to experience so many hardships. And he recognizes, rightly so, that they will need joy in the midst of this, and the Holy Spirit will provide for them. Um, so he prays that the Father would preserve them in these trials through their joy. This joy isn't something we can muster on our own as a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that grows organically as we're in relationship with Christ. I, I have some apple trees in my yard. They, they've been in my yard for, for three-ish years now, um, and they still produce absolutely zero fruit. So at, at this point in time, I'm pretty much given up any desires of ever having my own orchard. That's not going to happen. Um, now, I, I, could, I could just decide, you know what, I'm really impatient. I'm done waiting for these trees. I'm done watering them. I'm just going to go take apples and tape them to that tree uh, just to make me feel good about myself. But ultimately, we all recognize that wouldn't solve the problem because those apples need to actually be organically connected to that tree. That's the same way with us. We can't, we can't just decide, okay, I'm just going to have joy now. Like, I'm not fearing, feeling very joyful today, so, uh, oh, there's joy. I accomplished it. I've arrived. I'm good. Um, That's not how joy works. Joy comes through an organic connection to Christ. We see, sorry, this prayer is kind of a culmination of so many of the teachings in the farewell discourse. So I keep going back to other passages, which again is one of the reasons why I'm encouraging you to go back and continue reading through this passage over and over again because it's just that rich. Um, You go back to John chapter 15 and he he talks about being the vine and how we have to be organically rooted in Christ to produce any fruit at all. This isn't something that comes by trying really hard. This is something that comes by leaning into Christ through our relationship ultimately with him. The third thing he prays for is purification, that his disciples would be purified. He states in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. Sanctify has kind of two, two nuances. It can have two different nuances. I think both are probably here evident in this passage. It can refer first to making something morally holy or righteous. Sanctification could be like a moral purification. Um, this is something that we regularly see in scriptures. The believers are supposed to be purified. That we're supposed to become more holy, more like Christ. However, sanctify can also refer to consecration. 
consecration, being set apart for a specific mission. In fact, it's, it's the same Greek word that's used a couple of verses after this verse, in verse 19, where Jesus says that he's going to consecrate himself. It's the exact same Greek word. I think probably both ingredients are combined here so that Jesus is praying that the disciples would be set apart and conformed. He clarifies here in this verse that sanctification is done by truth, and truth is God's own word. Word refers throughout the Gospel of John first and foremost to, to God's revelation of himself, which we see especially in the person and the work of Jesus, right? At the very beginning of the Gospel, Jesus declares that he is the word. But it also, it also includes scriptures themselves as scriptures reveal who God is. God's truth then shapes us, it prepares us as we drink it in, as we hear it, as we read it, as we memorize it, as we meditate upon it, as we sing it, as we seek to live it out. Scriptures transform us. It changes who we are. We're shaped and conditioned by it so that we can be better vessels prepared for God's service. Similar to, to anyone who's served in the military, that there are so many things that you need to do to serve in the military so that you can be better prepared to serve. There's physical conditioning, there's mental conditioning, there's just technical things that you need to learn. All of these things help condition you so that you can be better prepared to be a better soldier. We as Christians are called to the same thing. We are called to a conditioning that happens through God's word being spoken into our lives. These are, these are the priorities then that we see in Jesus as we, as we look at his prayer. Jesus prays for protection. He prays for pleasure. He prays for purification. Each of these principles is rooted first and foremost in their disciples' relationship to Christ and the completion of his great redemptive work that he prayed about at the beginning of our passage. This prayer hinges on that. It all hinges on Christ. Again, we know what's about to unfold. Jesus is about to die. He's about to be crucified, but death can't hold him. He will be raised. He will ascend to the right hand of the Father, and he will continue to preside. And because of his mighty work, because of all of that, he has opened an avenue, just as we discussed during communion. He has opened an avenue so that we can have a relationship with God. You see, Jesus' prayers are different than ours. They're different than ours because his engagement with the Father is direct and it's unmediated. He doesn't need a way because he is the way. He is holy and righteous and good. He is God. He doesn't need sacrifices or anything else to stand in the gap. He is the second person of the Trinity. He doesn't need anything. But that's not the case with us. That's not the case with us. Already, he's told us multiple times throughout, throughout the farewell discourse that we can only come to the Father through him. Again, we just looked at John 14 about that very thing. This means that even in our prayers, we ultimately can't come to God on our own. We have to come through the Son. We have to come through Christ. We see, we see him hitting on that over and over again in the farewell discourse about the importance of praying in Jesus' name, of praying through him. John 14, verses 13 through 14. John 15, verses 7 and 16. John 16, verses 23 and 26, over and over again. The only way we can come to the Father is through the Son and through our union that we enjoy with him. And we are united with him. We are united to him only because of the Holy Spirit who's working in us. So as we pray, it's a Trinitarian act that's unfolding 
even in our hearts. As we go to God, it's only because God is Trinity, because Jesus has prepared a way, because the Spirit is applying this work in our hearts. So now we can approach the Father. So we can boldly go before the throne of God. Boldly go where no one should have gone before. Where Isaiah, when he in a vision saw himself before the throne of God, declared, woe is me, I'm unworthy to be here. We, we can go boldly before the throne of God because we are hidden in Christ. Because he has prepared a way for us. And we can pray through the Son and by the Spirit to the Father. So not only then has Jesus provided us with a paradigm of his priorities, he has also provided us with power. He has provided us with power as we boldly approach the throne of God. He has provided us an avenue to powerfully apply it all through Christ. Again, this paradigm is instructive. He prioritizes God's own glory. Secondly, he prioritizes the spiritual needs of his disciples. He doesn't pray here, notice, for any of the physical, tangible needs, but he does in other places. Just because he doesn't note any physical, tangible things for the disciples, he does certainly in other places. When he prays their daily bread um, in the Lord's Prayer, that we, again, we all know fairly well. So look, when we pray, we don't want to overly spiritualize things so that we only pray about spiritual needs and turn a blind eye towards all the difficulties and the hardships of life or even just, or even just ignore the mundane items of life. Oh, I think God wants to be our regular conversation partner about everything. I think God wants us to bring everything to him. But on the other side of the spectrum, we also don't want to make subordinate things, ultimate things, and never pray about the ultimate things in life, God's glory, spiritual needs of his people. We want to make those, we want to make our priorities reflect his own. Just like we began this message, as my children learned to speak, I was excited to hear them. I was excited to hear from my kids. Their grammar was broken, their vocabulary was small, and their syntax was, well, sad. Um, but it was absolutely amazing. It was absolutely amazing because it was the voice of my children. It was an exciting thing. And as they've aged, their speaking has also matured. And by and large, it happened through listening, through listening to mom and dad, listening to their parents. The more they listened, the more they continued to grow. The same thing is true in our own lives. The more we listen, the more we continue to grow. Have you seen this truth in your own prayer life? Or do you continue to pray the same sorts of prayers that you prayed as a new Christian, but maybe even with less fervor? Or maybe you, you hardly pray at all. Maybe you pray kind of the perfunctory prayer that you have to pray before you eat food, and then, and then you kind of mildly listen in on Sunday mornings as we pray, but maybe that's it for your prayer life. Or, or may, maybe, maybe you're really diligent to be praying in the mornings, you're really diligent to be praying in the mornings, but then as you leave your quiet time, as you leave that devotional time, the prayers begin to wane over the course of the day until you approach God again tomorrow morning. We all need to be in more prayer. Again, we have the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, who is holy and infinite and beyond all understanding, and he, he's longing to hear from us to hear the words of his children, to hear, his, to hear us boldly approach him through his son who has supplied an avenue. 
the greatest thing about this, the greatest thing about this prayer is that it opens up communion with our Father who is listening and waiting. Your Father has called each and every one of us, each and every one of us, to a more intimate prayer life through Jesus' powerful paradigm of prayer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray that we would take these things to heart. Lord, that we would take seriously the, the avenue that you have supplied us that we might be in conversation with you. Lord, I pray that we would take your priorities, that we would take the things that you hold up to us, that you declare to be the most important, the most significant, and that those things would be truly the most important and most significant in our own lives as well. Father, please continue the great work that you have begun, not just in your disciples, in your immediate disciples back in the first century, but in our own hearts. Father, you are good. We pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Our benediction this morning comes out of Jude, verses 24 to 25. Please stand. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Have a good Sunday.